Well, it has been a minute since I've recorded a podcast, so my apologies for falling behind there. Um, I had my finals week and wrapping up the uh, spring semester there and all that good stuff going on, so kind of got a little busy, a little sidetracked, but on the bright note, we have finished up our first year in graduate school. So again, three more semesters, and I'll be pretty much there as far as the DPT uh, goes. For those who don't know, I'm in school uh, to get my doctorate of physical therapy. So it's nice being through finals, let me tell you. And I've officially graduated with my bachelor's of science in exercise science. So I now have a degree in exercise science. I have a certification in personal training, and I'm wrapping up some CEC uh, work as well. So all kinds of stuff going on here. Very busy, but a lot of exciting things happening, and uh, I'm really excited to be back here and just kind of use some of the time that I have now to be sharing some new knowledge and wisdom with you all, and uh, I hope you benefit from it as well. If you like what I'm doing on Instagram, on this podcast, whatever, please uh, share it with a friend or someone you know who could benefit from hearing this information. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to be going over muscle recovery and muscle growth to a certain extent. And what we're really going to talk about is um, with that, my surgery that I had in December 2019. So if you didn't know, in December 2019, I had bilateral inguinal hernia surgery. So I had both sides done. So I'm going to dive into that a little bit, as well as some of the things that I did um, during the recovery phase to maintain a lot of what I had worked so hard for, maintain muscle mass, maintain mobility, help myself to recover quicker and get back on track, that sort of thing. Um, So without further ado... We'll dive in. So the surgery I had was actually performed robotically. So I had a da Vinci robot doing a bilateral inguinal hernia repair with a uh, surgical mesh. So they went in with the robot. So there were um, three very small incisions and they were able to fix everything and patch everything up. Um, They said that both sides were an absolute mess, Um, and I definitely felt better after it was uh, repaired, obviously. And um, they said, you know, with what you're doing and all, you probably shouldn't have another incident, just kind of a fluke thing. Um, I don't even know what caused it, really. Um, There was no one moment when uh, I really felt things were different. I just kind of looked down in the shower one day and uh, realized that things weren't quite what they usually are, if you uh, understand what I'm saying there. Um, So that's a little bit about the uh, hernia there. And um, I mean, now I look down and you can barely see any scars. Um, You can't really tell that anything happened, which was great. Um, but I, after the operation, um, I spent 15 minutes 
in the recovery room. So it took me 10 to 15 minutes to wake up um, after the anesthesia. And within the next 30 to 45 minutes, I think it was, I was um, standing up. So they took me out of recovery and took me to a private room. They got my parents. I was kind of just shaking off the effects of the anesthesia for a little bit, you know, just kind of groggy. And then I got up and moving. And uh, I think it was every half hour or so um, before I was uh, released from the hospital, I would get up and walk down the hall and back. So, you know, same day, literally just a couple hours um, less than a couple hours, actually, um, from being on the operating table. And I was up and walking around. Um, the pain was minimal to non-existent. Um, I was very uncomfortable um, because I was very lean at the time. I think I was at a 7 or 8% body fat measure. And they had to um, pump extra carbon dioxide gas into my abdomen for the surgery. So if you're unfamiliar with abdominal surgeries, they inflate your abdomen with gas, uh, carbon dioxide gas, to uh, prevent them from, you know, nicking anything that's underneath because there's some important organs that are in your abdominal cavity, obviously, and they don't want to accidentally cause harm or injure those. So um, for me, they needed extra um, so just kind of bloated and, uh, puffed up, so to speak from that and just kind of uncomfortable, but I wasn't in a whole lot of pain. Um, I took over the counter Tylenol, um, as a pain medicine for the first day or first two days, um, after the surgery, but that was the extent of it. Um, like I said, I was up and moving around, um, never took any um, opioid or serious pain medicine that way. I just kind of kept it simple there with the Tylenol. And, um, you know, short, simple to the point. Um, but all in all, I had a real easy go of it from the uh, physical standpoint. Um, additionally, I kept my diet very clean um, throughout that time, obviously. So I was doing a low-carb approach. And the reason that I was keeping low carb was when I eat carbs, I tend to crave sugar real bad. Um, and that's kind of a slippery slope for me because when I was growing up as a kid, I ate a ton of sugar. Um, Scooby-Doo fruit snacks, um, had to be the Scooby-Doo ones, um, Nutella, uh, peanut butter and jelly, all that sort of thing. Chocolate chip cookies, um, you know, just a lot of sugar as a kid. And I feel like a lot of people can relate to that. Um, but yeah, so I avoided the carbs and the sugar and kept it high protein and high nutrient dense food. So I was typically eating a salad. I was eating uh, eggs. Um, I was eating yogurt a lot just to help with the digestion, uh, that sort of thing. So just kind of keeping the diet simple and clean. Um, eating the protein, protein is very important with tissue recovery, obviously. So keeping the protein levels high was helpful for recovery. 
um, keeping the fiber intake high with the vegetables and some fruits um, and taking in the probiotics with the yogurt kind of helped the digestion a little bit too um, because, well, when you've just had a abdominal surgery, you don't really want to be straining at all when you're on the toilet if you uh, get what I'm saying. So um, keeping everything clean and just kind of flowing free was uh, obviously the goal. Um, but because of the um, dietary approach I used, just keeping everything very clean, um, the other thing with the sugar is sugar um, can lead or increase your likelihood of an infection at the site of a wound. Because think about bacteria. What do bacteria feed on? Sugar. Um, so, you know, just trying to minimize as much of that post-op stuff as I could. And again, I'd say I was pretty successful. Um, it took, I was not cleared to return to weightlifting for four weeks. They wanted to ensure the tissue fully healed. Um, but my first day back in the gym, I felt just as good as when I left. Um, you can scroll back through on my uh, Instagram there, and you'll be able to see that I was doing a Z-press, a 95-pound barbell for like 10 reps, and it felt pretty similar to uh, when I left. So I didn't really lose a whole lot during that time. Um, I did do a lot of walking. Um, I tried to get up and move as much as I could. I tried to take care of my muscles too. So I was doing foam rolling when I could, some light, gentle stretching, just doing those lighter type of movements uh, whenever I could, just to kind of help keep moving, keep the muscles um, contracting or loosening tight muscles, um, just really practicing all that self-care. So as I just talked about, movement and recovery were huge in helping me recover from surgery. And if you're an athlete, crossfitter, runner, powerlifter, strongman, uh, cyclist, skier, whatever, then under-recovery has probably sabotaged you at some point. Under-recovery is literally a monster that steals the hard work and progress that people make in the gym. So I like to tell people, you know, you can see incredible progress just doing basic exercises. Like if you did, um, let's take barbell squats, for example, you can see tremendous growth in your legs from doing barbell squats. However, if you don't recover properly, you're never going to let that training kind of sink in and carry out its beneficial effects. So Obviously, recovery is important, and you're going to hear me say that a lot from here on out um, in this episode anyways. Um, and one of the big things that I talk about when I talk about recovery is my own history with exercise and fitness. So when I first started lifting weights, um, you know, no one really told me anything about recovery. You know, go into the gym, work out hard, lift hard, but Afterwards, that was kind of it. Um, and I played on a variety of sports teams, um, you know, varsity soccer. I played on a club travel soccer team. I played on the varsity football team for a season. And, you know, looking at um, the coaching and the um, training that I received at that point, 
no one really cared about recovery. You know, no one really cared about mobility. You know, it was just kind of lift the weight or do the exercise. They didn't really pay attention to form. Um, and as I kind of think about that, you know, I'm sure that did a lot of damage to my body physically because I was doing things incorrectly or I wasn't recovering enough and I probably missed out on a lot of beneficial uh, effects of training. But from the routines and everything that I've implemented now, I've been able to, at least as far as I can tell, reverse those damages. Um, and again, I credit that largely to my education I'm receiving in physical therapy. Um, so without further ado, um, I know I said that before, um, now we're going to dive into recovery. We know it's important. We know it helps. But what should we do for recovery? What does recovery even look like? So to start off here, we're going to look at sleep. Um, so sleep is what I consider one of the uh, pillars of recovery. Because if you're not sleeping well, then your body's not going to be able to physically recover. And you're not going to be able to perform at your maximum capacity. And I know that some people are out there saying, oh, well, you know, I slept three hours before, you know, this sports game and played fine. Or, you know, I only get four hours to sleep a night in college or whatever. Um, and my response to that is, one, you know, you're at a higher risk for injury. Um, it might not happen, but it might. Uh, two, sleep impacts your biomechanics. So your movement patterns will likely be off. And three, think about how much better you could perform on a full night's sleep. And the thing on that that I kind of alluded to there is so many people struggle with sleep. Almost half of Americans report having one night per week where they have bad sleep. And by bad sleep, they mean sleep so bad it really impacts them the next day and they really feel the effects of that throughout the day. On top of that, one in four American adults lives with sleep apnea. That's, that's high, 25%. And to me, again, those stats are really alarming because, again, sleep is good for recovery, but it's also linked to overall health. So it's the time for the body to kind of reset and repair itself. So when you sleep, your body strengthens the immune system. You improve your mood. You repair those muscles and damaged tissues. A lot of good things. Personally, for me, my goal is seven and a half hours of uninterrupted quality sleep every night. And I know some people are going to say, okay, well, you know, I sleep eight hours or nine hours. This is my minimum. At minimum, I want seven and a half hours of good sleep. When I was recovering from that surgery in December and January, I was sleeping eight to nine hours a night, which is a lot of sleep, but I was sleeping real good. And I credit part of that to the recovery that I was able to get. Um, you know, again, I recovered really well from a, a pretty big surgery, all things considered. 
Um, and again, I credit a lot of it to just being able to sleep well and really recover good at night. So some of my tips to uh, sleep better, because again, sleep is important. A lot of people struggle with it. So what can we do to help ourselves get more out of sleep or again, just sleep better? So the first part is just being consistent. So set a bedtime, set a time that you want to wake up, stick to that. So obviously your body has a circadian rhythm. So if you're consistent with your bedtime and the time you want to get up, then your body will kind of adapt to that. So think about hormones like melatonin, which is responsible for regulating your circadian rhythm and putting you to sleep. The production of those hormones is going to kind of shift and adapt to your circadian rhythm. So if you're regularly, like me, going to bed at 9 p.m., then odds are your body's going to start producing melatonin, start to get you to feel tired around 8 p.m. And for me, I really feel that, you know, tired kind of feeling like, okay, I'm ready for bed, usually like 8.30, 8.45 at night. Um, and I've gotten to the point where I naturally will wake up before my alarm just from being consistent for so long. I've kept this schedule for over a year now and, you know, it gets thrown off once in a while. Like obviously when I had the surgery, um, I got an extra three hours of sleep in the morning from the anesthesia. Um, but in general, sticking to this schedule helps me to feel more alert and focused and I just really uh, feel great and uh, I sleep really good as a result of that. So just kind of plot your own little schedule there, you know, take a look at it. If you have to be up for work at, you know, you have to be to work at 7 and you have to get up at 6 a.m. to do that, then maybe go to bed at 10, 10.30 or, you know, if you want to get to the gym before work maybe go to the bed go to uh bed at nine and then get to the gym at five um or something like that so the other piece is i am a terrible mouth breather so when i sleep i breathe through my mouth instead of my nose and um that's something a lot of people do um believe it or not and so what i ended up doing was taping my mouth shut at night. So I'm going to say that again, because you might be like, uh, what did he just say? I tape my mouth shut at night. And that forces me to breathe through my nose. This is something and I'm saying this because it's important. You really need to talk to your doctor about before you do it. Um, because obviously, you know, you're literally taping your mouth shut. So Consult with your doctor before you do this. Um, so a little bit about mouth breathing. In children, mouth breathing is linked to limited growth, abnormal facial structure, including changes in your teeth alignment. Uh, there's a lot of interesting research coming out about how breathing through your mouth impacts your teeth alignment and your potential need for things like orthodontic treatment. And oddly enough, I'm wrapping up my own orthodontic treatment right now. Um, so maybe there is something to that. 
that's not really my wheelhouse of research and interest, but if you're interested in that, definitely look into that. In adults, breathing through your mouth is linked to gum disease, which we know from our dentist, gum disease is bad, but it's also linked to chronic bad breath. Doesn't that sound fun? Constantly having bad breath. That's terrible. Um, And then breathing through your nose, anatomically, your nose has cilia, so those small little nose hairs that can get kind of annoying sometimes. There's mucus, um, sometimes too much, and then you need a tissue. But there's also bones in your nose, and these are called the contra or conca. Um, So you have a superior, middle, and inferior, or top, middle, bottom, nasal conca. Um, And this kind of helps to spin the air in your nose before it enters your lungs. And you might be thinking, why would I need to kind of spin the air when I'm breathing it in? So doing this provides an additional filter. So you're passing the air through those uh, cilia, so those hairs, a little more. So you're kind of helping to catch and trap debris, passing it through the mucus more, again, catching and trapping debris and other stuff that you don't want to be breathing in. You don't want it getting to your lungs. Uh, Additionally, you're going to warm the air a little bit. And if you don't think that's important, step outside on a cold day or a cold morning and breathe in through your mouth a few times. Odds are you might get a little uncomfortable doing that. So warming the air and getting it to or roughly to your um, body's temperature. It also moisturizes the air because our nose tends to be a little bit damp. uh, And that helps to prevent lung irritation. And you actually see increased oxygen uptake by breathing through your nose too. Um, Which obviously if we're talking about exercise and sports performance... The more oxygen you have, the more oxygen you can bring into your body, the better you're going to perform. Uh, Additionally, when you're breathing through your mouth all night long, you're going to uh, activate your sympathetic nervous system or your sympathetic drive. So your sympathetic nervous system is controlled by two hormones, epinephrine and norepinephrine. Uh, These are referred to as the catecholamines. And they kind of destroy your sleep quality. So if you've ever, you know, slept seven, eight hours and just woke up feeling awful, then maybe you were in a little bit of a sympathetic overdrive while you were sleeping. Um, So it's kind of taking away that restorative uh, aspect of sleep. A little more on the sympathetic nervous system. So this is kind of your fight or flight Um, response is what we think of it as. Um, So it increases your heart rate, it increases your blood pressure, Uh, you see vasoconstriction to your organs. Um, So, you know, things like your GI tract will receive less blood, and you'll get more blood flowing to the muscles, which might sound like a good thing. And again, in some instances, it is. So in exercise, We want the blood flowing to our muscles, but when we're sleeping, we really want that to be a parasympathetically dominated rest and digest, kind of recover kind of state. Um, So 
I tape my mouth with a 3M micropore tape, but there's plenty of other um, tapes that you can use for this. Um, again, talk to your doctor about it before you do it. I highly recommend the micropore tape so air can still travel in and out of your mouth if needed. Um, but overall, I have very good experiences with the mouth taping. Um, so I don't wake up with a dry mouth anymore. Uh, the dark circles or bags that were under my eyes are a lot smaller now, which is good. And in general, I feel awake and refreshed when I get up. Um, and again, this is just my personal experience here. Um, I'm not, you know, getting paid by anyone or anything like that to talk about this. Um, just kind of what worked for me. And uh, it's a great idea for you to look into if you have any of these issues. So additionally, room temperature is kind of big too. Um, so your optimal sleeping temperature is going to vary based on, you know, one person to the next. Some people like the room warmer, other people like it colder. For me, I like a colder room to sleep. So, you know, 66, 68 degrees max. Um, according to uh, sleep.org, the optimal temperature for most people is between 60 and 67 degrees if you're looking for a little place to start. So that's something you just play around with and say, okay, tonight we're going to start at 68 degrees. And if I don't sleep good, then tomorrow we'll do 65 or whatever. Just kind of playing around with different temperatures and finding what works best for you. Um, next, I don't really do this, but I know a lot of people who do and benefit greatly from it is white noise. So, you know, run a fan in the background, play white noise from your phone app or a speaker, um, what have you. Um, again, I don't do this personally, but I know a lot of people who do, and the research seems to support it. So white noise helped to put newborns to sleep in one study, um, and in another study, it helped patients in a coronary critical care and uh, critical care unit and uh, ICU patients um, get to sleep. So again, for me, I don't really think I do a whole lot in that regard. I don't play anything off my phone or a speaker or anything like that. But the research looks promising for it. Um, again, just another tool to have in your toolbox and kind of play around with to help you optimize your sleep. Um, last, and this is something I do uh, a lot and highly recommend, is um, one to two hours before bed, get rid of your cell phone, turn off the TV, don't look at computer screens, and I realize we're living in the 21st century and some of you are still quarantined at home. So doing that is kind of difficult. So the real key here is avoiding blue light, which comes from your screens and your devices. Blue light inhibits melatonin production, which remember we talked about melatonin earlier as being key for regulating your circadian rhythm. 
So it also helps to put the body to sleep like we talked about earlier. So if you really can't get away from the screen, then put on a blue light uh, filter or a night filter on your phone, on your laptop, whatever. And if your uh, device doesn't have that, then I would do blue light glasses, which is uh, something I'm very big on. So I personally wear Swanwick glasses or Swannies, um, the night Swannies, and I think they're incredible. Um, they're not too expensive compared to some of the other uh, glasses that I've seen. They come in a variety of different styles. So like when I'm at college and I'm wearing these around campus at 8 o'clock at night, I don't feel too bad about wearing them. Um, and they've also really helped me. I usually wear them 90 minutes, two hours before bed. And, you know, just between looking at the screens, um, the uh, cell phone, everything there, um, you know, you'd be amazed at the difference once you put them on. It's kind of like flipping a uh, light switch. Um, so I highly recommend them. I really benefited greatly from uh, investing in a pair of those. Um, I'm going to link to their website in the show notes. So if you didn't realize, I post all of the uh, podcast show notes on my blog. So if you're interested in trying them, you can head over and check them out. So next, we're going to talk about working your soft tissues. So your muscles and the underlying connective tissue. So when we think of muscles, we often think of what's called the muscle belly. So if we take the biceps, for example, the muscle belly is the part that you would see when you flex. The biceps have a tendon on both ends that connects them to bone. Um, so obviously muscles need that connective tissue attachment to um, attach to bone and act on bone to exert their effects. So, you know, pulling bone forward or backward or side bending or what have you. Um, another example would be the uh, lats in your back. So big muscle, and they attach to what's called your thoracolumbar or thoracolumbar fascia, which is a thick, dense connective tissue fascia layer over your thoracic and lumbar spine. Again, it's so thick and dense that one of your biggest muscles in the body can attach there. Um, so with tight muscles, you have a lot of things going on. Um, you have tight muscles, you could have trigger points, there's soft tissue dysfunction. Um, basically, there's a lot of potential for issue with muscles and tissues. And some of the impacts of you know tight muscles or any kind of dysfunction here include gait dysfunction, postural abnormalities, limited range of motion, pain, and a variety of other things. So let's take uh, your hip flexors, for example. So if we have tight hip flexors, real tight hip flexors, we're going to adopt a anterior pelvic tilt. So your pelvis is going to kind of tip forward. Uh, so think of your pelvis kind of like a bucket of water, and we're going to start to dump water out by... Um, 
tilting the bucket forward. So if we have uh, tight hip flexors and we have that anterior pelvic tilt, then we're going to see increased lumbar lordosis, meaning we're going to be extending our back more to try and stay up straight. But additionally, we're going to see inhibition of the glute muscles and the hip extensors, uh, so your hamstrings as well. And the reason for that is when you um, tighten one muscle, the other gets inhibited. So if we think about a leg extension to explain that concept a little more clearly, if we do a leg extension for our quads, our hamstrings are not going to be contracting at the same time. So with the hip flexors constantly being tight and always on, our glutes are not going to contract as well. As well, um, So that anterior tilt, we already talked about the main postural abnormality with that, the increased extension of the low back. Now think about how that might impact your range of motion. So say you're going to do a squat, for example. In the squat, you need your pelvis in an anterior tilt uh, the whole time. So if you're already in an anterior tilt, how much further can you go? Additionally, because of the increased lumbar lordosis, uh, so that extension of the spine, you're going to see increased loading at what's known as your facet joints. And these are the joints between your individual vertebra where the nerve roots uh, for your spine run from. So they kind of run out here. And if you increase your loading here, these joints are not meant to be loaded. They're not meant to bear weight. So now we have abnormalities in the weight bearing of our spine. And it happens to be at a site of nerve root or where nerves are very prevalent. And now say we're going to exercise, say we're going to do a squat and we load a 300 pound barbell on our back and that's going to compress and push down on our spine. How do you think that's going to feel? Not too good. So those are some of the reasons that, you know, taking care of your muscles, taking care of your tissues and just making sure you recover properly are really good and beneficial because you'd like to catch injuries before they happen, not after they happen. Um, so as far as taking care of my soft tissues, I like to do a lot of foam rolling. I have foam roller, I have rumble roller. Um, I've got a quite a few different things. Um, those uh, spiky lacrosse balls, both the uh, soft versions and the hard versions all kinds of different things. So the literature uh, supports my love for foam rolling. So studies have shown that foam rolling helps to reduce uh, delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS. So that's kind of the sore muscle feeling that you get two to three days after you've worked out. Um, foam rolling also can increase joint range of motion. So that might be a good thing to do as a warm-up before you go and lift. Because if we're increasing our range of motion, then we're going to lift uh, better or at least work through a better um, range of motion. Um, so I foam roll as part of my warm-up and I foam roll 
as part of my cooldown, and I typically foam roll my upper back. So I find my last rib, and I go from rib 12, uh, because you have 12 ribs, up to uh, my upper back, so about where my shoulder blades are. Um, and the reason I don't go down to the lumbar area is your lumbar spine doesn't have ribs attached to it. There's nothing holding your lumbar spine in place. So if we're foam rolling and putting pressure on that lower back, the lumbar spine, we're actually pushing ourselves into more lordosis or more extension of the spine, which is what we said we don't want because of the anterior pelvic tilt. So foam roll the upper back, foam roll the quads, the hamstrings, and the calves. And again, I really like this stuff, or otherwise I probably wouldn't do it every day, multiple times a day. Um, So when I'm warming up, I typically go a little more aggressive with it. I really try and find the trigger points, which are just those uh, painful spots in the muscle, and really try and attack them and roll them out real hard. And then when I'm cooling down, it's sort of a slower, more gentle pace of a foam roll. Additionally, I really like my massage gun. Um, So I have a massage gun, and I use that for pretty much everything. Um, Chest, arms, legs, calves. Um, I know some people even use their massage gun on their butt. So if you want to do that, be my guest. Um, I'm working on developing an online store. Um, so you're some of the first people to hear this, uh, but we are working to develop an online store and we're working to provide massage guns. And specifically, we're going to sell high quality massage guns at a low price. So right now I'm hoping for like $120, $130. Um, We've had some issues because of the COVID thing, obviously, Um, you know, shipping gets delayed and uh, other things come up that you might not expect. So um, we're a little bit behind on that. However, we're working on it and it's a great way to get that deep myofascial release. Um, So just kind of loosen up that uh, muscular and connective tissue connection that we talked about earlier Great way to break up scar tissue, all kinds of great things about them. Um, Additionally, I use what's known as a CTM band. Um, So you might see me posting about this on my Instagram page sometimes. Um, So this is called a compression, tension, and movement band. Um, And this is a newer thing. It only came out like a year or two ago. But I really like this. It performs a real deep myofascial release through compression, tension, and movement, believe it or not. Um, So it's got these uh, knobs, so to speak. There's a variety of different ones you can get. Um, They're, you know, detachable, but you um, wrap it around the muscle you want to loosen, and you can use this for pretty much anything. You can use it for your foot, your uh, calves. I usually use it for my calves. Um, You can use it for your thighs. So quads, IT band, hamstrings, um, up high in your hip, you can do it on your arms, um, pretty much any place you can get it around, you can use the band. Um, And it really digs in deep because you're combining that 
um, compression from the band, that manual release from the knobs with movement. So you're stretching, you're contracting, you're promoting blood flow to the area. You're doing a lot of different things to really help and target that muscle. Um, So if that's something you're interested in, I'm going to link to their website in the show notes. And I've also got a coupon code for you there as well. You can use the code BRAWN10, B-R-A-W-N 10, to get 10% off your purchase from CTM Band. Uh, Additionally, because I uh, am a PT student and I've got some connections with other PT students and that sort of thing, um, I'm able to leverage scraping and cupping modalities. So scraping is a manual technique where you use a typically a stainless steel um, kind of bar or other um, apparatus. I don't really know the correct term for them. Um, probably should because I'm in school for PT, right? Um, but Basically, it's a manual technique to help loosen up tight muscles and break up scar tissue and get that deep myofascial release. Um, It's typically pretty painful, but you feel a lot better after it's done. Um, I believe in China, they call it gua sha, um, and it means it's supposed to leave like a red mark on the skin. Um, And I also do a lot of the cupping, um, so typically for the back. Um, I really like the feeling of cupping massage, Um, but again, it's kind of hard to do cupping on yourself, and especially if you don't know what you're doing. Um, So those are two things I do for recovery. Those are things you can talk to a physical therapist about or other healthcare provider about if you're interested in having them done. And next, we're going to talk about temperature. So I know we kind of talked about temperature when we were talking about sleep, um, but there's other means that you can use temperature to help your body recover. Personally, I'm one of what I would believe is a very small group of people who enjoys extreme temperatures. So personally, I've skied in negative 40 degree wind chills in the winter, and I can spend half an hour in a 200 degree sauna Um, even in the middle of the summer. So the ability to adapt to those temperature stresses and continue to perform. Um, So let's take skiing, for example. Uh, Depending on where you're skiing and your experience, you might need to perform at a high level on the ski slopes despite the cold. Obviously, you dress for it, but um, you you can't cover everything. So usually part of your face is exposed or you really feel the wind as you're skiing down or what have you. Um, So if you're really into human performance, being able to perform at a high level, no matter what the temperature is, is kind of a big piece there. Um, But again, we're more interested in recovery. So you can actually hack um, temperature to facilitate better uh, recovery from exercise or sport. So my college, I'm lucky enough that my college has a dry sauna in the sports center. So dry saunas use heat to um, warm the air in a small enclosure. 
and it's typically, uh, most of them typically heat to about 200 degrees. And you can really get a good sweat going just sitting in one of these. Now, what really interests us is the literature. So research has found that just using a dry sauna, so sitting in one of these um, saunas, lowers your rate of all-cause mortality and reduces inflammation, reduces oxidative stress, increases nitric oxide, increases insulin sensitivity, and leads to better exercise performance. Those are all amazing things, and that's what we want to hear from a uh, exercise or athletic standpoint. Lower rate of death, good. Reduced inflammation. Exercise tends to induce inflammation uh, from the damage to the muscles and the tissues. So reducing inflammation is a good thing, and this is a natural means of reducing inflammation. We're not taking a pill, we're not taking uh, over-the-counter medication or what have you. Reducing oxidative stress is also key too because of the free radical formation in the body. So free radicals are these um, basically molecules um, that run around and steal uh, electrons um, from other parts of the body. So having free radicals makes more free radicals. Um, I'm trying to keep it somewhat simplified because you can really get lost in the weeds with this sort of thing. And exercise uh, produces free radicals. So if you can reduce your level of free radicals early on, then you're going to uh, see better health and uh, less pain and oxidative stress and strain as a result. Um, increasing nitric oxide is always interesting for us because nitric oxide is responsible for vasodilation. So it helps to give you that pumped up, really vascular kind of look. Um, and that's obviously beneficial for your heart. Increased insulin sensitivity. So basically that means if you eat, say, a high-carb meal, the body will have to produce less insulin to exert the same effect. And the reason for that is you're more sensitive to the insulin that you secreted. And better exercise performance is obviously great. Um, please consult your healthcare provider before you go into sauna type stuff because, well, um, you're going to sit in a 200 degree box. And if you have different health conditions or precautions, that might not be good for you. Um, so heat is obviously a good thing like we just talked about, but sometimes you just got to chill out. So personally, I like to take a cold shower and I realized that for some people that sounds daunting, um, but cold showers have been studied and linked to improved metabolism, improved circulation, improved immune functioning, all kinds of good things. Um, so improving your metabolism will obviously help you improve body composition, which is associated with lots of benefits. Enhancing your circulation will help recovery um, because obviously muscles and organs and tissues all need nutrients. So if you get more blood to those areas that need nutrients, you're going to get more nutrients in and get more 
debris or junk or um, crap or waste product or what have you out of the muscle. Um, and improved functioning of the immune system is a great thing, uh, especially now because of the whole COVID thing. Um, basically, if you get sick, odds are you're not really going to be able to exercise. And if you're sick, your body is more focused on fighting off the disease than it is, uh, you know, exercise. Um, so just keep yourself healthy, take care of your immune system, and then you're going to be able to perform better, whether it's in a uh, sporting competition or training session or what have you. Um, there's been a lot in the news from what I've seen about red light and red light therapy. I don't use red light therapy and uh, I'm very interested in finding out more about it. And I'm aware of a lot of the beneficial claims about red light therapy, but a lot of the research I've seen, the devices they use are very high powered. So they're using very high powered red light therapy devices. And a lot of what you see on the market is low powered um, lights. And you can even look on, uh, I think Amazon, if you Google red light therapy, some of the results that come up are actually plant growing lights. And these are the things that people are using and claiming to have all these health benefits too. Um, when the research is using things that is much stronger and more powerful than a plant grow light. Um, so I'm kind of curious and it's something that I'm watching and looking into more. Um, and I'll probably dive into it at some point and probably do a blog post or a, a podcast or something like that for you all about that. But um, for now, I'm kind of avoiding it, you know, and some of you might be listening saying, okay, well, if people are buying the lower power devices and they say they work, then does it really matter what the research says? And, um, you know, that's obviously a good point. Um, you know, we think of the same thing with a placebo. If you give someone a placebo and it works, does it mean that the uh, placebo is bad? You know, if it's having a beneficial effect, should you still give it to someone? Um, so just a little ethical thing there. Um, but in general, I'm not really the expert about red light therapy, so I won't pretend to be. If I dive into it more, look into it more and go deeper into it, play around with it a bit, then I will update you. So we've kind of talked about movement already. But in general, you really need to be up and moving. So a lot of people, um, I'm speaking primarily from an athletic perspective, but also I guess it fits for fitness too, um, because I can't tell you the amount of times that I went in, had a really good leg day and struggled to walk afterwards. And then I just kind of sat down or laid down or got comfy and put the feet up and that was it for the night, you know? Um, so you don't move and it feels great when you're doing that, but it's sabotaging 
your muscle recovery and stealing some of the progress that you could have made. So I'm going to reference my exercise physiology class here, uh, which was a undergraduate course I took. Um, The textbook for that was Powers Exercise Physiology. You can find it on Amazon. Um, I'm linking it in the show notes. Um, So citing my sources here. Um, But in general, light exercise at 20 to 30% of your VO2 max. So for most people, that's going to be a light walk or a moderate intensity walk. Uh, That helps to facilitate recovery. And the reason why is it slightly elevates the heart rate and enhances blood flow throughout the body. It's not pushing your heart rate up to, say, 140 or 150, but it's getting your heart rate up to maybe like 90s, 100, depending on your resting heart rate. Um, So if I have a rest day when I'm not going to lift weights or do any exercise, I like to take a good recovery walk for that purpose. I like to try and walk throughout my day, too. Um, just to keep up and moving. And I've actually done a blog post about the benefits of getting up and moving throughout your day. So I'm going to link to that as well. If you're interested, you can kind of dig into that more. But um, obviously, we've already talked about the benefits of increasing blood flow. So if you get more blood to your tissues or your muscles, you're going to give them more nutrients, which will help them recover and grow. And you're also going to get rid of waste products. So you're flushing out all the bad stuff and bringing in good stuff. Um, So highly recommend, although it might feel good, just kind of crash on the couch. Really consider just getting up and taking, you know, a 10-minute walk. Um, Especially for, uh, I'm going to pick on one group of people here in particular, uh, the endurance athletes, so runners, cyclists, all of that sort of thing. Um, A lot of them, again, this is maybe me stereotyping a little bit, um, but from my experience with endurance athletes, a lot of them, when they're done with their um, sport or their competition or practice or run or whatever, they just kind of, you know, they're done. They went out, say they ran 10 miles, um, which is more than you would probably need to run. Um, I'll talk more about my approach to endurance training uh, at another point. Um, But that's it for them. You know, they stop moving. And oddly enough, you can see a lot better um, performance in the endurance round when you're constantly moving. Um, So think about the 80-20 principle. 80% of your activity occurs below your um, lactate threshold and 20% occurs above it. So if you walk, um, say, 10 miles a day, and that's all going to be below your lactate threshold, obviously, uh, then you would then run the rest of the uh, distance there for the 80-20 principle. Um, I kind of did the numbers wrong. I guess I should use if you walk eight miles and you would run two um, to get the 80-20, a little more correct there, a little miscalculation there. So walking eight miles, so 80% below the lactate threshold, and then running two miles or 20% above the lactate threshold. 
Um, and that's a reference to the 80-20 principle. And again, I'm going to dive into my approach to endurance training and my two cents uh, on a future episode uh, coming soon, um, because that in itself is going to take me quite a while. So last, nutrition. And I guess this is kind of a spoiler alert because I'm not going to dive into this now because this episode would gain easily another 45 minutes, if not an hour. And if you've been listening for this long, odds are you're probably ready to take a little break. So we're going to release another episode all about nutrition real soon. Um, So again, it's so important that I'm giving it a full episode. Uh, So thank you for listening to this episode of the Brawn Body Podcast. As always, if you have any questions or need anything, want something cleared up, want to discuss something, whatever, feel free to reach out. Feel free to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram at Brawn Body. Uh, We're on Snapchat as well, which is at Brawn Body. Um, And feel free to share the podcast or our social media channels, our website, whatever, with anyone you know who could benefit from what we do and what we talk about. So thank you again and hope you have a great rest of your day.